sure you'll see gradually more chairs and less cushions in the hall as we go on. 20 years from now, it'll probably be all chairs. <laughs> Maybe some cots. You know. <laughs> and another thing I wanted to say is that um, I wanted to warmly welcome you to the bereavement ceremony that's happening on this Friday. Um, it's, um, as Tom said, it's at 7.15 until 8.15. And you're welcome if you want to come to bring a picture, photo of anyone that you've lost. And the idea behind the bereavement ceremony is to come together in community to remember and to honor um, people that have been dear to us. So could be someone, a recent loss, or could be from a very, very long time ago. Um, some may want to come to um, remember the uh, uh, effects of the tsunami. You know, it really depends on you, but you should feel free to come and, and, and participate. It's a really simple ceremony. There's some chanting, and then there's a kind of a hair-raising, hair on my part anyway, um, candle-lighting ceremony. We're up on the third floor, so it's always a little bit uh, something I... I um, try to relax in the midst of, let's just say. But everyone lights a candle, and that's a time when you can talk if you'd like to. You can come and just be silent, and that's fine too. But if you'd like to say a couple of words about the person that you're here for, then that's a time when one does it. And then we chant a little bit more, and um, then there is tea and some very, very good cookies. I always ask for really good cookies for the brief and ceremony downstairs. So that's another thing. Um, and I also wanted to mention tonight, I have been in Sri Lanka for the last couple of weeks trying to um, help with the um, uh, survivors of the tsunami. I was able to participate in a... Uh, a planning uh, and participating in a psychological and spiritual healing program that's supposed to take place over the next three to five years. But my real point in mentioning this is because I did just get home a, f- a few days ago and I'm experiencing quite a lot of jet lag. So um, if I start yawning, it's not because I don't want to be here. And in the question-answer part, if you're asking a question and I yawn, um, you know, hopefully we're all friends here, so (laughs) don't take it personally. It's really just the jet lag uh, kicking in. Seems to hit about, um, no, I'm not past my bedtime. Um, Seems to hit about 8.30 that there's this incredible crash, but I'm noticing it beginning now, so (laughs) I wanted to let you know. All right, so what I would like to talk about tonight, I will begin with um, something that the Buddha said, a very short kind of teaching that the Buddha offered. Praise and blame, success and failure, pleasure and sorrow, honor and dishonor come and go like the wind. To be happy, rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. Praise and blame, success and failure, Pleasure and sorrow, honor and dishonor, come and go like the wind. To be happy, rest like a great tree in the midst of them all. So, these are known as the eight worldly winds, or four worldly winds, these pairs of of opposites. And what 
the winds mean is that we're blown around by these external forces. We're blown around by praise and blame. We're happy when we're praised. We're unhappy when we're blamed. Um, we're blown around by success and failure and pleasure and pain and um, being honored and dishonored. And we're like leaves in the wind being pushed and pulled around by these forces that are oftentimes totally and completely out of our control. And so what I'd like to focus on tonight, a few weeks ago, as some of you know, I, I talked a lot about praise and blame. What I'd like to focus on tonight is the pairing of success and failure, or gain and loss. And the idea is to see if we can understand success and failure a little bit more, because anything that we understand more deeply, we're already a little bit freer from. And also to see if we can relate with a little bit more balance and a sense of perspective and a sense of um, deeper sense of, of understanding these forces in our lives. So that instead of being pushed around like a leaf in the wind, we can reside like a great tree in the midst of it. So clearly, we desire and we want and we sometimes find ourselves intoxicated and addicted and attached to success, seen as a good thing um, in general, but maybe even more strongly in this country that we live in. Success is seen as huge and important and significant and meaningful. And we're taught to um, be afraid, basically, of failure, to think that failure is a huge problem, and that we, personally, have a huge problem when failure occurs. And so we want to see if we can relate to success and failure with a little bit more equanimity, And one way to do this, of course, is to notice how we imbue success with this sense of significance. You know, we take ownership of success. When success happens, we think of all the things we've done so that success has occurred. But as we know, success is quite fragile. It's quite impermanent. It comes and it goes. It's there and it's not there. And so quite clearly when we're overly attached to the results of our actions, to the fruits of our labors, then we're in a very shaky, unstable place because of the inherent impermanence of (coughs) success and failure. We're not taught this. We're taught that you know, if we work hard enough, we'll be successful. And it's, a, it's an intensely personal problem when we can't live up to these standards. You know? And that when success changes as it does, when impermanence kicks in, that we've made a huge mistake. And oftentimes, success occurs. You know? And it's our attachment to it that makes for the problems. I'm thinking of the many people who made a lot of money when the stock market was way up, and then all of a sudden, 
you know, maybe some people in this room, all of a sudden, within a very, very short amount of time, it was completely gone. You know, as I understand these things, a lot of the fortune was on paper. doesn't really seem quite real to me, but I'm sure it it does and is in some way. But on paper, people made huge fortunes, and then all of a sudden, gone, you know, overnight. Impermanent, not stable, the attachment being the problem. We imbue significance to success according to cultural conventions, and we judge success as good and failure as bad. We measure ourselves and we measure others by worldly values. We relate to success through very deeply ingrained societal beliefs. And we have very strong models of what it means to be successful, of what it means to be a failure. In some ways, we carry this as a society, and different countries have different standards. In other ways, it depends upon our own, the own small world that each one of us has concocted. You know, where maybe it doesn't fit into the country as a whole or our family standards or this or that. Maybe we've rejected that in some way. But in another way, we're still caught. You know, in in our own little way. Maybe in this environment, one wants to be a successful meditator. You know, that's the way to go. Um, Maybe um, in another situation, one, one wants to be a successful daughter or a successful... Um, father, or whatever it might be. You know, it, it really is somewhat individual. I remember many years ago, we had a, a week-long retreat here. We have a week-long retreat, as many of you know, every year. And in the course of these week-long retreats, um, the teachers have a lot of contact with the practitioners. So Even when there are people that we don't know who begin the retreat, by the end of the retreat, we tend to know everybody really well. There was a woman on this retreat. This was probably, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. And she spoke quite a bit about how odd the center was, you know, how weird a place it was. And I was curious about that because, for me, this is home, of course, and it's kind of the air I breathe, and it seems quite normal. So I was, and, you know, I have enough of a perspective to know that in certain other uh, arenas of the world, it would be seen as quite weird and quite strange, especially the slow walking is somewhat (laughs) of an odd thing to observe, if not participate in. If you're just looking from afar, you know, it looks like a cult. It looks... (laughs) unbelievably odd. But in general, you know, we don't do anything. It's pretty wholesome around here. I mean, you know, nothing much happens. We sit and we walk and we try to speak kindly to one another and tell the truth. And, you know, I mean, it's not odd. <laughs> it's actually it's actually pretty, pretty, pretty good, pretty normal. But anyway, she kept talking about how it was a strange place to be. And so I started speaking and asking her questions and you know, kind of trying to find out what her life is like, that she thinks it's so weird. And she said that she um, worked in a club in Boston. She lived in Boston, and she lived in a club in Boston. And I guess it was one of these really um, pizzazzy clubs, one of these, these clubs where it's hard to get in. 
And she said that she and her um, friends at the club, her co-workers and friends that she had made at the club, would stand um, together, would congregate together. And as each person came in, they would deem them a success or a failure according to what they had on. Now, according to their clothes, and I guess particularly according to their shoes. Shoes was a really big thing. And I was listening, and I was thinking, boy, would I be judged. Because, you know, I had my Birkenstocks, and my Birkenstocks at that time I wrote my name on because there was a phase around here where a lot of people had Birkenstocks, and so sometimes the shoes were being replaced by other Birkenstocks that weren't your own, but, you know, looked the same, but the size, the feel was totally off. So I had my name on the bottom of the shoe. And um, really funky, you know, and I, I just had this funny feeling of I'd go into this club maybe to see a friend or, you know, I had no idea where it was, but I just could envision myself casually walking in and, and um, you know, hanging out. And then not even knowing that people were looking at my feet, you know, and judging me by my feet as a failure, you know, which I didn't feel. You know? It was such an interesting thing, just another world that failure and success had to do with footwear. (laughs) But it's just an example, you know, because I'm sure if you reflect, you can think of your own ways, your own examples of ways that you think of yourself. And then, of course, in thinking of yourself, I was assuming all these people probably had really nice footwear. Then thinking of yourself and then others in terms of these lines this person is a success, this person is a failure. I am a success, I am a failure, according to these extremely fragile standards that are totally made up, by the way. It makes us dependent on that which is outside of ourselves. We find ourselves living in relationship to things external to us. And so we find ourselves endlessly Um, dependent on that which is completely subject to impermanence is utterly fragile and without substance or meaning. And the thing that's so interesting is that we've made it up. I mean, it's cooperative. We gather in groups and we make these things up. But we still can see that we don't have to be part of the group. We're a group unto ourselves and that each one of us has made it up in some way. Whatever the mind has created can be dissolved. That's really the good news. You know, wherever suffering has been created, there can also be a letting go and a dissolving of it through the light of, uh, of awareness, of understanding. Our solid ideas, the ideas about success and failure that are quite solidified, where it's obvious that no matter what anybody tells us, you know, maybe one's heard the talk so far up till now, and, you know, you're thinking of the things that obviously clearly mean that you're a success or a failure. You know, this is an exemption. You know, I can sort of hear this, but um, this one thing or these five things or whatever are clearly, obviously, what makes me a success or what makes me a failure. And that's what I mean by solid ideas that aren't being questioned. They, it is connected to self-esteem. 
You know, the ways that we think of ourselves as successes or as failures are very much connected to our self-image, to our self-esteem. If we're not living up to the models that we've created for ourselves, there is poor self-esteem, obviously. And clearly there's been a lot of talk about it, particularly in this country, in America, this big problem. Um, Tons of money goes into it in different school systems to raise the self-esteem of children. But adults talk about it all the time, too, you know, that it's a real issue in this country, poor self-esteem. And some of you are very familiar with um, a dialogue that the Dalai Lama had many years ago with a group of psychologists, where the psychologists were trying to explain to him um, this great suffering in America around self-esteem that people feel very badly about themselves and oftentimes hate themselves. And it's something that in uh, as teachers in Dharma practice, one is, is dealing with a great deal of the time. And the interesting thing about it is that the Dalai Lama couldn't understand. You know, he couldn't understand the dialogue. He couldn't understand how could you hate yourself? Don't you love yourself most? You know, and then the idea is to try to, to love others. But how can you love others and, and hate yourself? He couldn't get it. He couldn't get the dialogue that was happening. And I find that very interesting because of the different cultural understandings. I mean, clearly, he's a very, very, very smart person. Clearly, the people that he was working with, the Tibetans that he was basically intimate with, particularly at that time, did not have problems with self-esteem. Yeah. So it's, it's just an interesting um, thing to see in that way. But the other side of this is that the very idea that it's a problem reflects the other side of our views about ourselves. And this is, I think, a quite an interesting thing as well. And what I mean by this is that the overly high regard most people hold about themselves and the anxiety felt when one doesn't measure up to an overinflated self-image is part of this discussion too. You know, and I kind of wonder whether it's part of being in us at a superpower, whether it's part of the country being the powerful country that it is, that we grow up with this overinflated um, sense of ourselves, of who we should be, and what we should be able to accomplish, and thinking because we have such education and such possibilities in our life and such access to so many things that the rest of the world doesn't always have access to, that because of that, we should be other than the way that we are. You know, So in a way, it sets up this overinflated view of who we are and who we should be. And then always feeling like a failure because of not measuring up to something that is unrealistic to begin with. So I think it's, it's interesting to look at this in, the, in, its, in its full scope. The result, of course, is always a sense of inner failure. Now, if there's an overinflated um, sense of oneself, then always there is going to be an equally strong sense of failure. And I also think that this particular culture is so intensely competitive that we're always comparing ourselves with someone else instead of a sense of we're in this together. It's really that we're in this alone. 
you know, this illusion that we're in this alone and we have to do it all by ourselves. The John Wayne syndrome runs rampant, you know, and that if we don't do it, there's no help available and we don't know how to always help others as well. You know, this sense of alienation or isolation because of the intense competitive nature. And it's so, you know, even for those of us who live somewhat of an alternative way of life and may have different values, I think the sense of competitiveness really has to be seen with great honesty if it's there. Because it really is a very false barrier in terms of intimacy and in terms of being able to receive help and offer help and be um, beings of, of healing in this world. Because even when you want to be a being of healing, maybe you want to be a better being of healing. <laughs> and then again, there's a, a, you know, there's a barrier to, to real intimacy. There are a couple of practice remedies to this that I wanted to mention. One practice remedy is to train ourselves to be less sensitive to the perceptions of others. Yeah, to really take that on as a training to train ourselves to be less influenced by the way other people think of us, less caring by how we're perceived by others. And it's not something that happens immediately, of course. You can't just say it and wish it and it'll be so. But if we take it on as a training, noticing the times when we're so overly sensitive to how others perceive us or see us as if it's all that meaningful... You know, then we can train ourselves in a different direction. We can train ourselves to notice the way we're being affected and to gently let it go every time to see if we can notice it as a thought that's arising in the mind in reactivity to how we think somebody else is seeing us. They may be seeing us a certain way, they may not, but it doesn't matter, even if they're not seeing us in the way we want to be seen which may be happening a lot of the time, is it possible to see this as a reaction, as a thought, and then in, with great compassion to let it go? You know, just with great compassion to let it go. And the other, the second, is that instead of investing in self-building or in self-image, which we can spend a lot of our energy and life doing and can feel quite supported in, instead of investing our energy in this way, we can go against the values of self-centeredness. I mean, we can kind of appreciate smallness. And smallness not being being invisible, smallness not being being stepped on or being insignificant or not thinking that each one of our lives isn't utterly important and meaningful. Not that kind of small. But the smallness that appreciates uh, a humbleness in life, the smallness that appreciates respectfulness, the smallness that is appreciative of the very small things in life, instead of thinking that everything has to be big and uh, huge and grandiose and dramatic and and this and that. Really, the appreciation for the very small beauties of just you know going out of the house and I came out of the house tonight in shock of cold air, 
you know, and how wonderful to be able to feel, you know, to be able to feel that cold air and to have a warm coat and um, to be walking to uh, the center. You know, just, just appreciation for small things. Finding ourselves more easily contented instead of reaching out all the time, trying to grab onto something that we think is going to bring us great happiness. Instead, reaching back inside of ourselves for an, an easy sense of contentment about what is right, right here and right now. So we can find freedom from these models that have been set up and that we've set up for ourselves. Success and failure is a concept on some level. It's just a thought. When we are attached to either, we suffer. And that is what the result is of attachment. Both success and failure are uncertain and impermanent and fragile. Failure is too, as much as success is. When we cling to the impermanent, the results are anxiety and agitation. The results are anger and grief. When we're holding on to, when we're clinging to that which is impermanent, because we're relying on conditions, and conditions are always unstable. We wish they weren't sometimes, but they are always unstable. This is one of the great understandings of the Buddha, that the Buddha taught in such a a simple way, uh, and and something that I think takes us um, moment after moment, month after month, year after year of practice to really understand and embody ourselves. But any time we're relying on conditions as being more stable than they are, there will be suffering in some way or another. Some of our attachment to success and fear of failure has to do with attaching to the past and to the future. There's a a Chan master who wrote some very beautiful poetry called The Song of Mind. And one of the lines in, in the very, very long poem that he wrote is, The past is like empty space. The past is like empty space. To relate to the past as empty space leaves us a great deal of freedom. Because oftentimes what we're doing is we're making the past more substantial than it is. We're remembering our past fortunes and misfortunes. We're remembering our past successes and our failures. And we're counting them up. You know, instead of counting up the, the simple things in life, we're counting up where we messed up and where we did a good job. And we have lists. Inside, we keep this hidden list. You know, sometimes it's even written down. But, if it's, <laughs> but even if it's not written down, it's, it's a list that is conditioned, that is in our minds. And it's spare moments, you know, waiting for the elevator or sitting you know, in meditation or whatever, we tend to go over that list, over it again and again and again, and we make it more and more real by going over it. You know, we give it more reality by going over it and kind of tallying up the list. Have there been more successes than failures? 
that kind of thing. And then if we come out with more successes, maybe we feel good for a little bit. But then we keep thinking more and more. You know, and then there are more of the failures start to come in. And um, we're kind of sunk with that way of, of living. Regarding the future, we can find ourselves very lost in plans, in dreams, in goals that are endless, never resting in the here and now. And of course, it's not a problem to have goals. It's not a problem to have dreams and aspirations and to think about a better job that we want to get or um, a better situation in life or these kinds of things. Of course, nothing's wrong with that. But to invest everything into the future, we forget about the here and now. And we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. We don't know whether our endless goals, we're even going to have time to, to, um, to attain them. You know, I mean, just, just, of course, being in Sri Lanka so recently was so stunning. Now, we already know this. You don't have to be in Sri Lanka to know it. But I heard so many stories about how instant it was. You know, girls at a, at a fairground just enjoying themselves at a fairground by the beach and just all of a sudden this, this wave coming, this, this huge wave as we know coming, and in probably the space of 10 seconds, life changing dramatically. You know, and we think too, all the plans that the parents had for the children and all the, the ideas about how their children would get married and they go to school and maybe they take care of them when they got older and, you know, kind of, kind of all, these, all, all these things, all these, these plans for the future and then all of a sudden, just completely gone. And I think what's so shocking about it is just that it happened so very quickly. Yeah. But we don't know. That's a very dramatic kind of thing that happened, very terrible thing that happened. But in life as it is, in an ordinary life, without such a, a huge event, things happen very quickly. And so, it, again, it's not to not have goals. The other side of this is to, you know, to say, oh, everything's impermanent, so why should I even get up in the morning? And this is really a wrong understanding. This is called depression. It's not called liberation. <laughs> you know? Practice has to do with inner freedom, not with, um, not with depression by any means. So it doesn't have to do with passivity either. When there is less concern with loss and gain, either there is great wisdom in one's life or there is great passivity. And so we have to know the difference. You know, we have to see if we can know the difference for ourselves so that there can be a wise relationship to success and to failure. The idea really is over and over again to affirm the world, which means to bring great compassion to our lives and to the lives of others. You know, to affirm the world without attaching to it. That's really the middle path without compromise, is to know this is the world and not to see it all as a dream. But to affirm the world and to relate to ourselves and others with great compassion and kindness and wisdom, and at the same time, not to attach. This is our, our great effort in life. It's very easy to equate pain with failure. You know, this is something that can be a very deep conditioning, that when we go through times of pain, or when we find ourselves in chronic pain, 
for those of you who may be in chronic pain, or when we find ourselves in emotional pain, to think of it as a failure when actually it's painful sensation occurring, arising, and passing away. It has nothing to do with our sense of self. Other times, we equate pleasure with thinking that we're doing something right. You know, pleasure with success in some way. And we think that if we're having pleasant sensations, then we're on the right path, when in reality, simply pleasure is arising and passing away. Some years ago, I spoke with a practitioner, a very serious practitioner, who had come out of a long retreat. This person had sat a three-month retreat. And she had a really, really hard time. And um, sometimes after a retreat, you can exaggerate it in your mind and you can, you can think that every single moment was just absolutely agonizing. I tend to do that when I think about my first three-month retreat. I think every single moment was absolutely agonizing. And I know it couldn't have been. You know? It's not possible for every single moment to be absolutely agonizing. But anyway, she came out of this three-month retreat and that was her experience, that everything was was really um, painful, that her body was painful and her mind was really painful. And yet, after she'd been out of the retreat for a little bit of time, she began to see something was really quite different in her psyche. You know, the quality of her mind was different, the quality of her consciousness. The choices she was making were wiser choices, more balanced choices, more you know, more reasonable choices than she'd been able to make before the retreat. She had kind of this newfound sense of steadiness and and balance in her life. You know, and she began to have to question this. Was the retreat a failure? You know, just because my experience was one of pain. Does it mean that I, you know, failed the three-month course, which is not possible to do anyway? Yeah? But she she began to actually have to examine this for herself when she saw that her life was actually quite radically different after she was out of the, you know, the boiling pot and into her ordinary life. Her ordinary life was really quite a different experience to be in. We want to encourage a don't-know mind, a mind that reserves judgment, does not come to conclusions. When we experience great loss in our life, in the initial experience of it, generally we think, this is great loss, this is terrible, I'm not going to be able to survive this, depending on how strong the loss is. But all of us, because of having lived for a few years, all of us, and maybe maybe living many years gives us even more of this kind of insight, All of us know we can look back to see that some particular situations that initially we thought was the worst possible thing that could happen, actually, in a really weird way, we become grateful for. You know, in a really strange way, we think it woke us up. It's not something that we would want for anyone else. It's not that we would want anyone else to go through what we went through. And yet, in some way, we cherish it. In some way, we think, ah, you know, it woke us up in some way that probably I wouldn't have woken up without the help of this particular situation. We learn a certain sense of humility and empathy and understanding. I, um, I'm thinking of uh, somebody who was uh, going to Harvard 
some years ago, and she had she was doing extremely well in her academics at Harvard, and she had a sister, a younger sister, who was going to a lesser college and was not doing as well, and. This person was a practitioner, so she was aware that, you know, of her feelings of happiness because she was doing better than her sister. And she wasn't happy about them, but she was aware that these were the feelings that she was having because she'd always been competitive with her sister for for her whole life. And then, all of a sudden, things switched around. She didn't get the position that she wanted to after she graduated. And her sister started doing really well in her academics and actually started doing, taking on the particular subject, esoteric subject, can't remember what it was, but esoteric subject that the sister who had been doing so well had been doing. So it was very close to the bone and very painful, very hard for her. After some time, though, she began to realize that something that was quite hard in her, you know, I am like this, I am like that, began to dissolve a little bit, began to melt. It's almost like she was forced into humility. But as a practitioner, this is a good thing. You know, if you're not practicing, you can't say it's a good thing because um, you want to be able to use the lessons we're given in life. And if not, it just kind of crushes us and wears us down. But as a practitioner, it's a whole other story because our aspiration is freedom above all. You know, because that is our main aspiration in life, is inner freedom. These kinds of situations can be used differently, you know, can really be used to develop the qualities of heart that stand us in good stead on our path of freedom and of happiness. You know, as practitioners, we're really aiming for the deepest kind of happiness. We're not content with more shallow forms. We're really aiming for for the deepest kind of joy. Sometimes, as well, with great successes, in time, these successes lose their luster. Something really good that happens to us, and we think, oh, finally, I'm saved. It's the best thing that could have happened. Uh, And we're we're thrilled, and we call up our friends, and we're, we're just so thrilled. And then after some time, either it's not what it was cracked up to be, you know, or we just can't sustain that thrill. We just can't sustain that excitement. Or we find out that it actually wasn't the, the guy or the woman for us or, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, it, something changes dramatically and we think, oh my God, I thought that was a good thing. You know, when it actually wasn't. There is the wonderful story about gain and loss that I'll read to you. It seems this farmer and his son were very poor. So poor, in fact, that they had only one horse. One day, their horse ran away. When he saw what had happened, the son said, Bad luck. The father just shrugged his shoulders. Bad luck? Good luck? Who knows? The next day, the horse came back, accompanied by four wild horses from the surrounding countryside. Now we have five horses, exclaimed the son. What good luck? Good luck? Bad luck? said the father. Who knows? Later that day, while the son was trying to tame one of the wild horses, he suffered a bad fall and broke his arm. More bad luck, he complained to his father, but the father remained impassive. Bad luck? Good luck? Who knows? The very next day, a representative from the emperor came with orders to take every able-bodied young man back with him to fight in a terrible war. 
But since the son's arm was broken, he didn't have to go. By now, the sun was starting to catch on. (laughs) Good luck or bad luck, asked the father. Who knows, answered the son. (laughs) And we don't know. I mean, this is where we need to try. Sometimes it's hard, very, very hard. But we need to try to reserve our, our judgments, try to not come to conclusions so easily, and leave things a bit more open and fluid. When we have the ally of awareness, it is more possible to do this. Without the ally of awareness, it's pretty much impossible. But with the ally, with the friend of awareness, of illumination, of observing, the capacity to observe what is happening, the rawness of what is happening in the here and now, without the obligation to have to be mindful of something from the past or the future, which is neither here nor there, but the invitation to be aware of exactly what is happening right now in this body-mind experience. It is possible to refrain from coming to conclusions. It is possible to refrain from sealing the mind up and then deciding this is how things are. It's good or bad. It's a success. It's a failure this kind of thing. We're more able to keep our hearts open, to keep our minds fluid and balanced and steady with the ally of awareness, this great invitation to know what it is that is happening right here and right now in this body-mind experience. Sometimes, of course, our own gain leads to loss for others. And this is just an area where we can bring some sensitivity in. Michael um, sometimes watches some sports. I can't exactly tell you which sport it is, but... (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, some sport or another, he watches. And (laughs) I could probably describe the ball, but anyway... Um, he, um, of course, has his favorites. You know, he has his favorite teams that he wants to win. But recently, over the past few years, he'll um, still want the team to win, but he also feels intensely sympathetic about the other team. And sometimes he'll root for the other team, you know, even though he may still inside he wants one team to win. He'll root for the other team because he's thinking, well, they never win. Or, or, you know, their parents are, are going to be so unhappy or, you know, this kind of thing. And so he's trying to hold it all in a, in a middle, in a in kind of a mindful way. Uh, just sounds like such a great way to practice while watching sports. <laughs> Using sports as a vehicle for, for waking up. With failure, of course, there is also self-blame that comes along with it. Um, You know, this is this is just something that is so um, such an obvious kind of thing. But um, again, when I was in Sri Lanka, I was in contact with a number of mothers who had lost their children, and these things are somewhat hardwired. But of course, with the loss, there was blame. With the loss, there was guilt because their job was to save their children. Yeah? And their job was to be a successful mother, which is, of course, a wholesome aspiration. It's only a good thing. 
But then out of this, their job being to save their children and not being able to, the result is blame and guilt. And of course, that is what they're going to have to heal from. That is going to be a huge aspect of the healing, is to let go of that blame because it was out of their control. You know, clearly it had nothing to do with them. Mothers were hanging on to their children as tightly as they possibly could, and the child was swept away. So that, that blame, that guilt is so unreasonable, and yet it is clearly part of the healing process to acknowledge it, to experience it, and to receive help from others. You know, and to be with other people who have experienced the same thing so that there is an, a, a depth of understanding. Um, something um, uh, Kucinic, I had this problem a few weeks ago too. Can someone say who it is? Kucinic, thank you. Um, <laughs> when he was having the presidential campaign, he said a couple of, of very interesting things. And I quoted him a couple of weeks ago, too, around praise and blame. But he said something very good about loss as well that I wanted to read to you. If you experience a deep loss, it is possible to come to the point where you realize you have nothing left to lose. If you have nothing to lose, you can get beyond ideas of loss and gain. Attachment to the outcome can deprive us of our best opportunities. It's it's interesting. It could come straight from the Buddha. Maybe it did in in a different way. But um, this is really one of our great endeavors in practice, is to let go before things are taken away. You know, not to pretend things don't matter, and not to not take care of ourselves and others, because that is residing in, in emptiness with a, a small e, you know, not real um, emptiness, the emptiness that is simply free from greed, hatred, and delusion. But it's, it's residing in a false sense of meaninglessness, of emptiness. But to let go so that that which is impermanent will not have its jarring effect, this is called wisdom. This is really what the Buddha suggested, is to let go before it's taken away, you know, which allows us to live more in love and less in attachment. When we are close to uh, a great change in our life or for people who are very close to death and know that they are, they never think, how, how good was my job, you know, or that kind of thing. It's a very rare thought to have. One of the most common things people think is, how well have I loved? You know, how well have I loved in this life? Our priorities change as we practice the perspective shifts in terms of what it is that we find significant and important. And the quality of consciousness in the present moment is what matters most. Now, perhaps we can uh, even just experience that right now, each one of us, is that the quality of consciousness is what matters most. The quality of our hearts, how we care for our hearts, is what is most important and what stands us in in great stead, rather than the status that we have in the world and the things that we've gotten or the things that we've accumulated or the ways that people look at us or perceive us in wonderful ways. You know, these things are, are, are in terrible ways. These things are, are really not important. And what we find is so important is the quality of consciousness 
the quality of our hearts. And this is really the direction of our practice. It is so easy to bring models of success and failure into the spiritual realm. You know, we know what it's like in the worldly realm, but we tend to bring the same models into our spiritual life where they absolutely don't apply. There, this is the realm, the spiritual realm is the realm of no success and no failure. It is impossible to fail at meditation unless you don't do it. You know, it is possible to fail if you don't do it. But if you do, and this, and by the doing, I don't mean necessarily, I mean, it's a great idea to sit every day. It's a great idea to be mindful from moment to moment as best as we're able. Retreats help so enormously. But I mean something even beyond that. I mean really cherishing the principles of practice. You know, really, really looking in an investigative way at life instead of living a life full of assumptions. You know, it is not possible to fail when we are open to life in this way. We can be very, very simplistic about our practice at times. When we leave the breath, we have failed. When we come back to the breath, we have succeeded. This is really simplistic, and it's not the Buddha's teaching. Now, so what? I remember someone many years ago who reported that he was able to be with each breath. You know, big, big deal. You know? No, no, no joy in that. Just kind of like, like, like clicking it off. You know, checking it off. Breath, breath, breath. You know, went to work, brushed my teeth, breath. No, no, no sense of enjoyment. No sense of 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 real um, spaciousness or or connection, or, or real intimacy, or a greater degree of self-understanding, you know, just being able to be with the breath. So we don't want to be simplistic in this way. The direction is what matters, not the results. And when we bring success and failure as models into our practice, we're assessing what can't be assessed. We're competing when it has nothing to do with competition. We are actually measuring the measureless. <laughs> it's probably the most, most important thing of the whole talk. We are trying to measure the measureless. Can't be. In our practice, we can always begin anew. It's one of the great graces of practice is that it's never like it's all over. It's always like it's just beginning. We can always begin in a fresh way. And in practice, we learn this because we have to begin in a fresh way over and over again. We do get lost in our conditioning. We do get overwhelmed by our thoughts. And yet, every time, there is the commitment to be aware anyway, to be aware with the knowledge that this is a fresh moment and that this moment matters. No matter how many moments we have not been aware for, no matter how many um, weeks or years or, you know, our whole lifetime we have not been around for, we can be aware right here and now, and it matters. doesn't matter how many moments we have not been present for. This moment, right here and now, is utterly significant and makes all the difference in the world. You know, so sometimes we can think it doesn't matter because we have not been present, and so what's another moment? So much can happen in just one 
moment. The entire course of our lives can change. The entire course of this world can change in just one moment. So it is not insignificant when we bring ourselves back, no matter how long we've been away for, to be here, to be present once again. It is sometimes said that loss is gain and gain is loss. And in practice, if you think you've gained anything, it's a problem. It's actually a problem, and it's a a stuck place if you think that you have gained anything whatsoever. However, if you have lost something, as in a little bit of greed, a little bit of um, aversion, a little bit of delusion, this is a great thing. You know, this is actually a gain. If you lose something, it's a gain. At the end of retreats, um, sometimes sometimes people said, I got, a, I got a lot out of it. It's kind of like a cliche in this, you know, after workshops or whatever, people will say, I got a lot out of it. And, and feel free to say that. I'm not making fun of that. <laughs> if that's natural for you, please feel free to say it. But um, what we really want is for you to leave it here. You know, we'll, we'll sweep up after to leave, to leave the torments of heart here, not to get anything out of it, but to actually leave your torments of heart here, you know, in this space, in this room. Do you have patience for maybe five minutes more? Yeah? Okay. Okay. This is a little bit longer than, than I thought. Um, as we know, conventional meanings, conventional sense of success loses its meaning in times of loss. Things that we have seen as a great success in times of loss, it kind of, kind of pales. So what we want to do is to turn our efforts and attention to where real stability can be found, which is within. I'm thinking of someone who... Um, has lived um, quite an impoverished life, who is without family, any kind of family whatsoever, quite successful in some ways, but um, doesn't have any kind of family, and has a very, very strong, this this is from a long time ago, not a current person, um, but I'm going to just say it in present tense because it's a little bit easier, doesn't it has this very strong belief system that family is necessary, that without family there won't be happiness. There won't be happiness. So because of there being no family, um, trying to find family in others, so for instance, by trying to find the right companion, trying to find um, family through that right companion, that, that, um, that she can find and connect with the other person's family. And it sounds reasonable. I mean, you know, hopefully this will happen or at some point. Um, however, the belief system that this is needed for happiness is really a problem. You know, the belief that it is a need is a problem. And in one way, you could say that it isn't a real need because real needs can be satisfied from within you know, that which is a real need can be satisfied from within. Sometimes we have to have a great deal of faith, other times really big leaps of faith to really take this in and apply it and look 
inside for what we're looking for instead of looking outside. But the fact is that looking outside in this example for family, it may happen, it may not. To live one's life thinking that one is going to be endlessly impoverished unless it happens, when it may not happen, it's not going to lead to anything other than a greater degree of impoverishment. Whereas to turn the attention around and to look within, to look where real contentment, real happiness can be found. You know, maybe we have to base our faith on the practice of others you know, when we don't have our own faith. Maybe we have to base it on examples of beings who have practiced over the last 2,500 years and have discovered that it's not just a cliche, that happiness is found within you know, maybe we have to recognize our feelings of insecurity that other people have this inside, but we don't. You know, everybody else has the potential to know inner freedom and inner Buddhahood, except for us. We're the only one that is left out. You know, we might think this in our heart of hearts. And so to examine this, to try to dismantle this false belief, and instead to take a risk to look within instead of trying to find lasting happiness in external conditions. Contentment comes from looking in the right place. In the world of conditions, there is only going to be temporary happiness, and we won't ever be satisfied. Or we will be satisfied, and it will change, because that's the nature of things. If there is gain, there is also loss. They are coupled. They don't stand alone as much as we would want them to. Looking within and being aware of our priorities in life and asking, what is genuine success? Genuine success is that which cannot be taken away by the circumstances of life. Genuine success is a more loving life a life in which there is a depth of awareness, a life in which there is wiser action and inner freedom, a genuine happiness, a genuine success is a life that is well used by life. I'd like to just finish by reading you something from Lazo. <clears throat> Success is as dangerous as failure. Hope is as hollow as fear. What does it mean that success is as dangerous as failure? Whether you go up the ladder or down it, your position is shaky. When you stand with your two feet on the ground, you will always keep your balance. What does it mean that hope is as hollow as fear? Hope and fear are both phantoms that arise from thinking of the self. When we don't see the self as self, What do we have to fear? See the world as yourself. Have faith in the way things are. Love the world as yourself. Then you can care for all things. Let's just sit for two minutes together.
See the world as yourself. Have faith in the way things are. Love the world as yourself. Then you can care for all things. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings rest in inner steadiness of heart. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to stay for some questions, so feel free to uh, stay or to leave. So, anybody, any questions whatsoever, comments, reflections? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, that would be uh, a good fear to see if you can be aware of because that would be a conditioned fear. You know, it kind of just hearing that, it kind of shakes something up about the solidity of a self that has a past and a future. You know, so it shakes up the sense of self being continuous and independent and um, substantial and you in a solid way. So when you hear the past has... Uh, is empty space, you know, if it were about, I don't know, this or that, it's one thing, but one hears it. Of course, the fear comes about because it it threatens the sense of self that we have. So because of that, because it's, it's kind of um, ev- evocative, you know, because we have this idea that we are solid and substantial and we have this particular past and we will have this particular future, it's a really good fear to see if you can be mindful of because the fear itself, if you can be mindful of, may um, lead you into um, something good. No promises, obviously. But um, if you can be mindful of the fear, it's not that there is just fear, you know, but if you're not, if you don't know the fear is there, and if you can't be mindful of it, aware of it, then it's there anyway, and it's running you in some way. Whereas if you can be aware of it, it could help shift your understanding about life and about yourself and about what is destructible and what is not, what is possible to annihilate 
and what is not? And that's a very, very significant question. In other words, the sense of self is possible to annihilate because it's just a thought. It's just a sense. Our thoughts about the past, our thoughts, you know, our thoughts about the future that we cling to so tightly, our thoughts. But there is that which is indestructible. And so that's the kind of direction of our practice is to find that which is indestructible. Who else? Yeah. Either one. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, Anything in particular? I was actually going to say forget it with the talk tonight. I was going to talk about Sri Lanka instead. But, um, But I didn't. Yeah. Um, is there is there anything in particular that? Okay, okay. I I can say a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, I um, when when the tsunami happened on the twenty sixth, um, on the twenty eighth, I went to Barry to teach for the week, and um, while I was there. I kept hearing the reports of the numbers going up and up and up, you know, of, of just these huge numbers of people who, who were lost. And it really, it really was, I mean, it hit everybody hard, but it really, it really, um, it really hit me hard, um, partly just because of the, of the sheer magnitude of the suffering and partly because of my enormous gratitude for the teachings I do feel that this teaching has saved my life, and that's not overly dramatic to say that. And I uh, felt that the teachings, you know, I got them from um, Burmese, um, Thai um, beings, um, Sri Lankans, um, Indians. You know, I got the teachings from um, Asians, basically, from that part of the world. And so I'm enormously grateful and so I began to think, was there something I could do other than um, send money? And I know money is the thing to do. And it's, you know, if you find a, a really reputable organization, um, it's really a good thing. When I was over there, I might digress a bit because it's kind of all, you know, it's not, not um, of a piece. But when I was over there, um, people had sent cans but no can openers. And um, people in Sri Lanka don't eat canned food, you know. It would be weird. It would be, you know, really a, a kind of a yucko thing. Whereas for us, it's okay. A lot of us grew up on canned food, so it's, you know, it's maybe not our preference, but it's fine. Um, people sent um, knapsacks where the, ruin, the zippers were ruined. A lot of, of knapsacks, which could be handy for the kids to have knapsacks, but the, the zippers were all ruined. Um, people sent tons of clothing. And the clothing was not culturally appropriate. And I'm not saying this in a critical way because I think we have the impulse to help and we do what we can and we, we, you know, we just don't know the whole story. And so um, we send from the heart and it's not always appropriate. So money is oftentimes the best thing to do because then the money can be used in the ways that are appropriate to buy culturally appropriate clothing or, or whatever. Um, but anyway, I just I just w- thought for a little bit. Um, is it possible for me to go there and be of some use? So I called up someone who actually had been trying to get me to go for some years to go to this particular meditation center and, and teach. And um, 
I called this particular person who um, is associated with a really good organization there, Sarbodia. You can look this up on the internet. It's an extremely reputable, grounded organization. So I felt very good about that. What was it again? Sarvodia or, yeah, or Sarvodaya. People say it in both ways. I had a little bit of a hard time with the word, so I was starting to say Sarvodia because it was easier for me. But the um, more Western way of putting it, Sri Lankans basically said Sarvodia and Westerners said Sarvodaya. Um, but it's pretty, it's S-A-R-V-O-D-A-Y-A. And it's, it was started by a man named Dr. Arya Ratna, who is um, known as the Sri Lankan Gandhi. He's, he has, um, there's a focus on him in the newest issue of Buddha Dharma, which is a, a journal for practitioners. So if you wanted to, to look it up there. Um, so, um, so this person that I called up um, is connected with that organization and is close to Dr. Arya Ratna and his wife, Nita, both of whom are in their 70s. And um, I just left a message and said, is there anything I can do? Is there some way that I can help? And I got a call back and an invitation to go. Um, when I said yes, I was thinking it was going to be in January because that's when I had my own retreat plans. So I was thinking I could not go on retreat. I could go to Sri Lanka instead and, and do what I could. But it turned out that the invitation for this, and it was a total invitation because I wouldn't be able to have afforded it myself, was to um, go in February. So then I had to make the decision because I was going to have to cancel classes, which for me, I really try hard not to do. Um, And I had to cancel my whole two weeks here, which was pretty full. And I can't say my family was thrilled. My mother-in-law saved a message that I left on her machine because she was afraid it was the last time she was going to hear my voice. I thought it was so dear. But um, there was that kind of, of feeling going around. So I kind of just had to make choices whether this was really a, um, a calling or, um, or whether it was just a desire or whatever. But I just decided I, I really, really wanted to do it. And um, my big um, concern would be that I would just be another body there and be a problem and maybe even get sick and have to be taken care of. So I really, when I was going over, I had my fingers crossed that that this was going to work out and that I was going to be able to be of help. Um, but the saving grace was that I was going to this particular organization and I had a connection to these particular very reputable people. And so I felt that um, my time would be well used, whatever it was. But I went over with the idea that I would do anything. I would um, build houses. Um, I would um, do whatever I was asked to do, sort clothing, whatever it would be, whatever I was asked to do. Um, but I have to say that it's really, really good that I didn't have to build houses. Um, it would not be my forte. I would have to ask a million questions. I would be a real pain. I would hit my thumb with the hammer. I would definitely have to be rushed to the hospital. Um, it, you know, it, it definitely would not be the, the best use of my, of my talents because it isn't a talent, to put it mildly. Um, so 
so what actually happened was the best of all things, which is that when I got over there, it was very serendipitous because the two weeks I was there, there was a planning, a, a series of planning meetings that I was asked to participate in to organize this psychological slash um, spiritual healing program, which was designed for the counselors, Sri Lankan counselors, of the people who had lost family members. You know, so in other words, I was involved in training the trainers. And um, my experience in practice was really what they wanted because um, it's a very religious, it's 75% Buddhist, which was a reason why I felt I could be of help because I wouldn't um, be comfortable going into a Muslim culture because I don't know my way around. With Buddhism, I really know my way around. I know my way around Asia. Um, I have quirky talents. I can chant, for instance, in Pali, which was something I did a lot of that was enormously useful and comforting and valuable. I thought it might be, but I didn't know. And I was very pleased to find out that that was something that was really wanted, was chanting. Um, with particular people, that's what they wanted. They wanted um, the poly chanting. They wanted that sense of comfort and of home and of inspiration and of connection. And the another thing that is kind of a, a quirky um, kind of, um, I don't know what you might call it, um, way that I've trained, I guess, is that I've studied karma a lot um, in, in a conceptual way. I know a lot about karma. And the culture there is reeling um, with this kind of um, karma is blame understanding. And it's not helpful. And it's not the way I understand karma. So um, with a lot of sensitivity, because there's no way I was going to go in like gangbusters and, okay, you know, I know, um, that kind of thing, because who am I and what do I know? But I was able to actually offer something at, um, at some moments that, where it was gratefully accepted and the tenor of the conversation seemed to change. And again, remember, I was working with the counselors who, um, in the beginning, wanted just answers. You know, they had these karmic questions, and they wanted to go in and just have the answers. They felt like they had to have the answers when they were asked these existential questions about why this terrible thing happened. And I think it's the very nature of human beings to want to know why, but it's not helpful. You know, the why is unanswerable. And just because it's our instinct, it's not as if there is an answer. And so coming down on the side of karma, it seemed to be an easy answer. The only problem is that it blames the victim uh, if it's not understood properly. So by the end of the time, what was so wonderful and heartening was to see that they saw that they didn't have to have the answers that their job was to listen deeply and with great compassion and simply to be able to be with the grief without reactivity instead of having to know what to say, which is where they all began. So that was wonderful. That was a wonderful thing to see. And um, part of this two weeks was also participating in and um, leading a retreat because 
although there is, as I said, it's, you know, 75% Buddhist, and so everybody knows about impermanence and um, this and that. Um, at the same time, there's not, and, and this is from, I, I might be totally ignorant because I was there for such a short time, um, but it seemed to me that there wasn't the rigor of the sitting. And I'm sure in some monasteries there is, and there and there has to be. So, you know, to all those monasteries where there are, I mean, no disrespect. Um, with the people that I was having contact with, um, just, you know, ordinary people like you and I, um, there wasn't the rigor of the, of the, of the, um, of the meditation itself, of the contemplative life. There was an understanding of the teachings, but there wasn't, um, very much knowledge, um, about the, 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 um, the, what is it, the bare bones or the mechanics or the, the life of, I mean, not even, not to just say about mechanics, but the life, the beauty of the contemplative life, the beauty of um, sitting quietly, and the inner resources that come about through the rigor and the discipline of the sitting and the walking. So that was something that I was able to offer as well. And they want me to come back and offer more retreats. And you know, one way it's really amusing to me because I learned it from them, and now you know, they want a Westerner to, to um, help them with this. And very beautiful. I mean, very just open-hearted and um, available to being helped, you know, available to whatever help was being offered as long as it was in a, you know, a respectful way. So there was that kind of agreement. And I think the respect is inherent because of the shared understanding of Buddhism. You know, in other words, um, if, if my knowledge was in something else, of course it would not be able to be accepted. You know, if I was trying to do this in a Muslim culture or Christian culture or whatever, it wouldn't be as accepted because there would not be that trust. But because of this being my family, um, I mean, it's not that I identify in a sectarian way with being a Buddhist. However, I do, I have been in this world for, you know, almost 30 years now. And it's the, it's, it's the mode that I'm comfortable in. You know, I mean, everybody has to choose a form or choose a mode, and for me, it's what I'm comfortable with. So in terms of there being a very easy kind of communication, it's so easy. It's, it's, it's shared. Um, you know, we all know the, the bowing um, rather than shaking hands. Little small things that um, make everyone feel at home, it's very shared. So I think because of that, there was an enormous degree of receptivity to what I really can offer you know, I mean, again, I could build homes if I had to, but it's not, it's not really where my, um, my life and my expertise had li- lies. Whereas in meditation, um, I was called upon to offer something I do know something about. So I was really happy about that. I felt really well used. And so it was wonderful. The whole thing was great. It was so well worth it. And I'm, I'm really happy I can say that. Um, I was I was going to go, and I wasn't going with this sense of, you know, I can help, because I didn't know. Um, and I, I wanted to just go and be available and see if that were possible. In other words, I wasn't going with it, this attachment to helping, because I, I think that's pretty lethal. Um, but, but help was possible because of the receptivity and, um, 
And it was very, very, very good. Very good. And I guess the other thing I would say is that there's an enormous degree of suffering, as you would imagine. Um, And the society, I think, is going to be able to manage it because of the family structure and because of the village structure and because of the extended family structure and because um, Sarvodia already has an infrastructure in place. Before the tsunami, they had an infrastructure in place, and that's quite rare. You know, to have a organization that is, they're 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 basically Buddhist, but they're totally non-sectarian. So they can do great peace work in terms of the um, religious and political problems that are that are happening there. I mean, everybody that I met, and I met Catholics as well as um, and and Hindus, and um, a couple of Muslims as well as well as Buddhists. Everybody said that. Their intention is, in, in their own language, they didn't use this word non-sectarianism, but everyone was intent upon saying this is not the only way, you know, that, that everybody's way is, is, is um, a respectful one, is worthy of my respect. This is just the way that I grew up. And I was very, very moved by that. I mean, I, I couldn't tell whether it was post-tsunami because catastrophes do bring people together. Um, so I couldn't tell about that but I found that to be quite moving. How did you explain the karma? <laughs> well, um, one thing I said is that the Buddha spoke about karma as being one of the four imponderables, which means that y- you can't understand it through thought, through thinking, and that only... Um, a totally, not semi-enlightened, but a totally enlightened being uh, known as a Buddha can fully understand the consequences of an action. In other words, it's conditions coming together and only a Buddha can understand what the totality of those conditions are. Um, We can just see that it's maybe this or it's maybe that or it's maybe this or it's maybe that, but we can't. And it's 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 basically arrogance to think that we know. Um, Something that I did notice is that people were very apt to blame the victims, you know, to say that it's because they did something bad in another lifetime, and that's what I really thought was going to be a huge problem because if you have that belief system. Even though you're with somebody's grief, um, there might be a way in which you're not as compassionate as you could be. You know? And to me, um, the strength in karma comes from giving, it you, giving you strength. I mean, it does help me to reflect on karma. It does help me um, to know that um, harming others is going to harm myself. In, in even subtle ways, not, not just you know gross violations, but an unkind word, it's going to come back on me. Um, that helps me a lot. It also helps when very bad things happen in my own life. To It, it helps me to have the strength to be with it, to, to know that it's because of something I did earlier when it seems unexplainable. You know, just to have that very simple understanding that um, it is because of past unskillful actions that, you know, could have been so far in the past that how can I take responsibility for them now? However, um, on some level, knowing that how I respond to this difficulty 
how I respond to this loss um, is what matters. That's what matters in terms of making karma for the future. And so holding it in a very mysterious way, not that I know what I did, but in a very kind of mysterious way, sometimes can, can help in terms of holding it as a mystery rather than, you know, a kind of like God punishing me or um, I don't know, that kind of thing. It, it's, it's more like this is just things as they are. That's what the understanding of karma does for me is it allows me to say, ah, you know, this is just things as they are. Can I meet it with some degree of grace and equanimity? Um, but I think that where you go off in this is when you say with others, that's why they're experiencing difficulties is because of some bad thing that they did in their, in their you know, some other previous life. I mean, that's for other people to, to see for themselves or to say for themselves. And I think, I think it's just utterly not compassionate when we relate to suffering in that way. And the big thing about the Buddha is he's known as the all-compassionate one. So you have to go towards the compassion. And the compassion is, 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 has to be weighted more than the wisdom. You know, you could say the wisdom is the karma. And in terms of the wisdom for oneself, yes. And I guess, you know, in terms of holding great suffering, to, to, it, it can help with equanimity a little bit if, if there's not this just kind of wordless scream, you know, the Edward Monk kind of scream, um, but more um, that this is this is is as it is. Not it is as it should be, but it is as it is, and that you could say is there has a karmic element to it too. But it's more to just keep your heart steady. It's not to um, to think that the person did something wrong. You know, I was talking to a woman who. Um, this wasn't about the tsunami, but she, um, she, has, she had a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful mother. And her mother is now 87, and she's getting cranky. And she, um, because of her um, understanding of karma, she's saying, well, her mother's getting cranky because she did something wrong. And her mother, in her previous viewpoint, did nothing wrong. Um, so... I mean, I hope she moves off of this at some point. I, I suggested something alternative that um, might sound a little corny, but I think is a better rendition, which is that her mother's a great bodhisattva and is being cranky to teach her patience. <laughs> That's a belief, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. More specifically, uh huh. The puzzle has always been okay, how can there be no self? Exactly. Still there right. This is the classic question. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm tempted to refer you <laughs> to. Um, <laughs> no, I, I wrote about this actually. In, um, in this journal, Buddha Dharma, I have an advice column. So people write questions and then. Um, a Tibetan and a Zen person, and I'm the Theravadan representative. We all, are you familiar with this? Yeah, we all write in our answer to it. And supposedly it's supposed to be from our various traditions, but in America things are a bit mixed up these days, so we kind of all do what we want. Um, 
But anyway, I, I liked the answer. So if you can find that, it'll sound more elegant than, than what I say now. But um, just kind of the short answer of this is that how I see it is that um, qualities of heart are, are what are reborn. It's not a matter of reincarnation, this you know solid sense of self going from one lifetime to another. It's more a sense of energies, um, heart energies um, uh, moving from one life to another. So not like a personality, not like you are going to find yourself in another lifetime and then realize, oh, you know, how did I get here? But more, <laughs> ah, but more um, the heart qualities being non, uh, um, being fluid and um, not they're not being a sense of self in those heart qualities. So, for instance, if you built up, a, if you cultivated metta in this lifetime, that's what will be reborn. If you cultivated metta and some version, metta and some version will be reborn. Um, if you cultivated patience and um, despair, you know that will be what's reborn. What yeah, well, that's where I'm saying despair. That's why I'm trying to say both aversion, despair. Well, sure. Yeah, that's what will be reborn. Yes, definitely. I mean, my understanding of it anyway. Yes. Supposedly, if you cultivate metta, um, uh, compassion, um, joy, and equanimity, and you really cultivate them, you're reborn in what is called the Brahma realm, which is um, uh, kind of a little bit higher than the human realm. But of course, the other way of understanding these things is that the Brahma realm is, is accessible here, right now, in this lifetime, when metta and compassion and joy and equanimity exist. The hell realm is existent now, as we know. You know. Yeah. So on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. When when um, uh, difficult things present themselves as you are either meditating or not meditating as they occur to you. Yes. Because it sounds yes. like you're not supposed to draw all these conclusions, but then I get curious to know how do you use the mind? It feels like it's a faculty, but it gets out of control. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Something that's fundamental to um, to meditation is that we are training. We are actually. Um, taming our minds. You know, we begin with a mind that is out of control. And the Buddha used the example of a monkey going from branch to branch and never finding a place to rest. And anybody in their first couple of minutes of sitting quietly doing nothing, recognizing that this recognizes this monkey mind. And so a great deal of our training is the taming of um, this monkey mind. And that's where we just need a great deal of patience and perseverance and kindness and determination because eventually the monkey does find a place to rest. And then we can begin to do the work of investigation. You know, we can begin to look into who we really are and how things really are 
and what is really going on. We can look into really profound questions, but if our minds are going all over the place and we're overwhelmed and lost by our thoughts and believing just about every thought that comes about, um, we're not going to have the clarity and calmness to be able to do any real investigation. We can do some, you know, we can reflect with the mind, but the investigation that is most profound is, is, is thought reflection that is mixed with silence mm. and the silence being the greater part of it mm. yes yes that is that is what is of most value in the beginning and the beginning can last for quite a while <laughs> doesn't mean a month you know <laughs> or a year <laughs> yeah or many years you know it, it just depends mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it was her moving from the beginning um, towards some yes. actions or take actions. Without a doubt. So mm-hmm. from that view, um, there's still success or failure. I mean Well Yes, yes. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and you could use the words you could use the word success and failure. It's just that those words have so much attached to them that um it's usually better to use the word skillful and unskillful just because culturally there's so much attached to it. Um but if you want to use the words, it's fine. What you have to be cautious about is the attachment, meaning even attachment to the skillful, because you want to do your best. We always want to do our best, and most of the time we are doing our best, and we don't always live up to what we want for ourselves and others. So it's to certainly have ideals and certainly you know, try for the best and try for the most skillful and know that it's meaningful. And at the same time, um, the attachment is always going to be a problem because sometimes it will go the way we want it to go and other times it won't. Mm -hmm. You know, the precepts come in really handy too, you know, because if we really, are you familiar with the five precepts? Okay. <laughs> um, the first one is to um, refrain from harming uh, and destroying life, and so to practice compassionate action. The second is to refrain from stealing and to practice generosity. The third is to refrain from harming others through our sexual energies and to practice taking responsibility in our relationships. The fourth is to refrain from lying and unkind speech and to practice wise and kind speech. And the fifth is to refrain from um, misusing alcohol and drugs and to value clarity of mind. So they're really simple. You know, they're things you would, I'm sure, have thought of without having a list. But to have the list sometimes can be a great guide. You know, because sometimes we just don't know what to do. And then we have this, these, these, this list of precepts that people have relied on for a really long time now. And they're so simple. Sometimes they're not easy, but they're really, we understand them. 
and then we can rely upon them as guides in sometimes quite complex ethical situations that we find ourselves in you know where everything seems like oh it doesn't matter or oh you know the person will be fine or they should be you know or they should get over it well maybe not you know i mean maybe it's our responsibility mm. Mm. yeah Hi. Okay. <laughs> Shall we call it a night? Yeah. Okay. Let's let's just sit for one second together. Make it a good second. <laughs> not a successful second. Not a failure. <laughs> just a, a being second. And just relax. Relax your body. Relax your mind. Okay. Thank you very much. And um, thank you for asking about Sri Lanka. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.